Welcome to the Broken Vessels Podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I would like to welcome you back to the Broken Vessels podcast. Once again, I'm just so grateful that you're joining me today for us to have some more conversations on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I have been very excited about this connection and the guests that I'm about to announce to you that I'm having on today, as well as another recurring guest that was on the podcast several months ago. Today, I have the privilege of having Emily Elizabeth Anderson of Thriving Forward. And many of you probably will be familiar with that name because she was on the very much talked about and popular documentary on Amazon Prime, Shiny Happy People, talking about the Duggar family and about Bill Gothard and IBLP and ATI and all of those things. Emily Elizabeth Anderson, she is the founder of Thriving Forward, a trauma and recovery advocate for people who have experienced abuse within a Christian environment. After growing up in a fundamentalist cult for 23 years and experiencing childhood domestic violence, Emily began her journey to recovery in 2015 and eventually found Jesus to be her ultimate healer. Amen to that. She soon turned her passion for writing into a blog, and her story has since been featured on several media outlets, including NPR and, as we said, on Amazon Prime. She's deeply passionate about educating on the realities of trauma survival and recovery. Emily's focus has been to create a space for survivors to experience support wherever they are in their journey, as well as find community with others who have experienced similar trauma. Emily married her best friend Joshua in 2020, and together they are co-owners of an ever-growing furniture refinishing business and co-wranglers of their two cats and one very large dog. And I'm a dog guy too, Emily, so uh, that's pretty awesome. So welcome to the Broken Vessels podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Josh, for having me. I'm looking forward to it. All right, great. And then we also have Jennifer Moody. Uh, if you guys remember, Jennifer and her husband, Brad, shared their story on episode 28. Jen, it's so good to have you back. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me again. All right, wonderful. Well, I want to go ahead and um, get into this conversation, and we're going to start with you, Emily. Obviously, you were able to share quite a bit of your story on the documentary. And I know you've shared probably your story ad nauseum on many, many podcasts and everything, but I would like you to share with our listeners about your upbringing and what it was that led your family to become part of the Bill Gothard sphere and IBLP and all of those things. If you would share, please. 
Yeah, so Bill Gothard started the Institute in Basic Life Principles in the early 60s. It was originally called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts, and then he later changed the name. And I would say in the 60s and 70s, and even into the 80s, that was really the peak of the organization. He would travel um, around the country and pack stadiums full of individuals that would sit for a week long for um, evening sessions and sometimes all day sessions. Sessions, hearing Gothard preach from a podium about what he called the seven basic principles of life. And it's estimated that close to 3 million people to this day have attended his basic seminar. He had a basic and he had an advanced and something called the anger resolution seminar. And my parents originally attended some of those seminars when they were in their teens and early 20s in the 60s and 70s. And they both became school teachers at a pretty legalistic, fundamentalist Christian school in the city that we grew up in and did that until uh, my mom started having children. And then at that point, my mom became a stay-at-home mom. My dad moved into construction. And I, I attended the private Christian school along with one of my siblings for several years. I attended from first through fourth grade. Uh, we went to that church as a family, and then we went to the school. And when I was in fifth grade, my mom decided that she wanted to start homeschooling. So I didn't actually join IBLP until I was 11 or 12. But I had been raised in these fundamentalist circles since birth. And yeah, so basically, since you were born, you've been under these ideologies and these teachings, because obviously, if your parents were teenagers, and it was getting drilled into them, then I mean, that had a huge impact on your upbringing. Yes, yes, it's all I knew growing up. And oddly enough, my mom spotted the legalism at the Christian school and church and said that she wanted to join IBLP as a way to escape some of the legalism. Oh, wow. Really ironic because really all she did was just hop straight from the frying pan into the fire and it just got worse and she wasn't able to see that at the time. But yeah, that's how we got into it. And um, in the, in 1984, Bill started a organization underneath IBLP that he called the Advanced Training Institute or ATI. And that was the homeschooling program. He produced homeschooling materials, not really academics, but he produced something called the Wisdom Booklets, which was sort of a Bible study program, not your typical Bible study program. It was 54 wisdom booklets and you did one booklet per month and each booklet went through a verse or a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. So all of the wisdom booklets covered Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Hmm. And they were supposed to be used same material from K through 12. So families were supposed to be all staying together, almost like a one-room schoolhouse style. And it took a few years to get through a full set of wisdom booklets. So once you got through them, then you would just start over again with wisdom booklet one. So by the time, if you were in the program from K through 12, you went through all the wisdom booklets a few times before you officially graduated. And it was not any form of real education. One of Gothard's grandeur promises was that once you finish the wisdom booklets, it'd be equivalent to having a full high school education and a pre-law and a pre-med degree. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that on the... <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Insanity. So it obviously, like, you guys weren't learning, like, history or mathematics or English literature. 
<laughs> no, there would be sections. Did they consider oh, those like, things like wisdom of the world or something? Is that is that the reason he steered clear of those things? Was it more like, well, that's of the world and we don't want to be like the world? I know like in a lot of fundamentalist circles where I grew up, you know, there was this whole like we need to be separate and that kind of thing. Yes, there was definitely a lot of that, as well as what we were limited in what we were supposed to be doing career-wise. Higher education was highly discouraged. It was pretty much forbidden for women. It was highly discouraged for men. So girls were trained to be stay-at-home moms and have as many children as possible. ATI was part of the Quiverful movement, which is a movement that believes that any form of abstinence or birth control or natural family planning is forbidden. means that you're not trusting God. So the average family in ATI had, you know, upwards of a dozen children. And my family was a little unique because my family got started in it later and my mom had fertility issues. So there was only over two of us. Now, what was it that led to you going to, you know, as you shared your story on the documentary, what was it that led you to go to the main campus and even be involved with Bill Gothard on a personal level? What what was it that led to that? So there's several large parts of my story that didn't make it into the final documentary, but I did explain that when I was around 10 or 11 years old, my family really imploded and my father began to sexually abuse me and he became deeply, deeply involved in sin, hiring prostitutes and living just a very rebellious life and being abusive to my mother. And due to all of that stress, my tiny little 11 year old body didn't know what to do with it. And I developed Crohn's disease within months of all of this happening. And um, I was officially diagnosed two years later when I was 13 and physician who diagnosed me said it was the worst case he'd ever seen. And all the physicians I had it, as a teenager agreed that I was their most difficult case. So I spent much of my teenage years in the hospital trying to survive. I was 73 pounds. Oh my goodness. Five, four. I looked like a Holocaust victim. Wow. Extremely, extremely ill. Almost died on more than one occasion. And my father was pretty absent during this time because he just worked and kept himself busy and wasn't really involved in the family at all or in my life. I don't remember him visiting the hospital. There was one time Hmm. he visited in all those years and it was after I had coded and almost died. Uh, He decided to visit once. Uh, So we had all that going. And throughout those teenage years, my mom and I would attend the annual ATI conference. This is where all the families would gather together for a week of in-person training and listening to sermons and teaching. And during those conferences for six years, from the time I was 13 until I was 18 or 19, Gothard targeted me. He sexually groomed me. He would spot me out of room of a thousand individuals and make eye contact with me. And immediately when he had the first chance, he would walk right up to me. He wouldn't even ask me my name, Hmm. but he would instantly start flattering me and telling me how beautiful I was and how beautiful my smile was and how God had a special purpose in my life. Hmm. And that special purpose was to come and work 
at the headquarters live on staff housing and, and work, you know, directly with Gothard for an indefinite period of time. Um, and for those six years, my mother and I held him off. We did not have a good feeling about it, which is odd because for a young girl to be asked to come work at headquarters is the highest honor. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, like, what were you thinking? Like, cause I would think you were so steeped in this stuff. Like you're thinking, Oh, wow. The big cheese wants to have me come work yeah. for him. You know? Yeah. It was, it was very flattering, but I would say Crohn's disease protected me in that way. If I hadn't had Crohn's, I probably would have gone up there. But the fact that I was so incredibly ill, my mom just knew that I was not stable enough to be removed from her care. She was my full-time caretaker. So that, that was really the driving force to why I didn't go up there immediately. By the time I was 18, I did end up headquarters briefly for 10 days. We were up there and we had gone up there with a pre-agreement that we would only be going up there for one to two weeks, mm-hmm. just for counseling. Growing up in my teen years, it was made known that my Crohn's had developed from the stress of my father's abuse. The symptoms were being driven by that, but it was still considered my responsibility to stop it. So I was always told that I need to learn how to deal with the stress so that it wouldn't physically affect me. Or I was told that there were things I needed to do. Like after I was molested, I went and told a family member and I was told that, oh, I know he's gross. Just stay away from him. You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) I wish I was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I was continually blamed and told that I just wasn't covering up enough or I shouldn't wear my pajamas around my dad. And I just needed to stay as far away from him as I could. And if anything happened, it was my fault because I got two calls. And I I, I find that to be a a big theme in, well, fundamentalist circles, but particularly in this one as well. But that whole idea that, you know, a man's sin or man's lust is somehow the woman's fault. And, you know, we, I mean, you see it every spring, summer, all the modesty advocates come out and it's like, oh, come on, man. But to put the weight of that upon a woman or a girl, the whole idea that it's their fault Mm -hmm. when this man or whoever is doing the kind of abuse that they're doing, it blows my mind because biblically... A man would have gotten stoned to death or something like that. But yet... Jesus directly addresses it. And he says to the person who is lusting to pluck their eye out if they cannot control their lust, yeah, he never yeah. places responsibility on the victim. Yeah. And, and it's just all topsy-turvy in these fundamentalist cults. It's not just the fundamentalist cult, but even just in broader fundamentalism, even in the evangelical church, these principle and man even we're going to get into this eventually but even beyond it gets taught these kinds of principles and things and you know i feel like bill gothard really did a lot he you know he had his own group but his teachings this well and i noticed in the documentary like they showed all the sbc churches that started using his stuff and you know like i know fundamentalist churches that were into that kind of thing so i'm just so sorry for what you went through and nobody should ever have to go through that that was awful you know in the documentary you know you talk about how like he i mean he literally he was grooming you and i he he almost molested you too right or he he did or what what exactly was it that happened I was not molested by Gothard, but based off of actions he had taken with other young girls, I believe there was a possibility I was on that trajectory. Yeah. 
Um, of course I have my own thoughts of what would have really happened, but there's only so much that I could say publicly to that. Um, but I, I was definitely sexually targeted by him. Um, he would play with my hair and whisper in my ear and he would touch my thigh and he would massage my hands and he would rub my shoulders and he would just get extremely close to me and just use all these words of flattery and tell me how much he loved me and how I was so special to him. Um, and there was one night in particular that he did that the building was empty late at night at headquarters and it was like 10 o'clock and we thought all the staff had gone home and he had started to become more physical with me and then asked me if I would come up to his office and his office is usually where he would uh, abuse girls. There Mm -hmm. was an allegation in the lawsuit that one woman was raped in his office and there are other similar stories to that. And so he guided me up to his office and I think by God's grace, there surprisingly was a staff member still in the office doing some computer work and, and Gothard it was clear by his expression he was not expecting that. And yeah. he backed way, way off. He had this intention of taking me into the office. And then we sat down on the couch and <laughs> he fell asleep. <laughs> oh, my. I, I do find it interesting, you know, like I, I think I remember hearing them talk about the six inch rule. And obviously mm-hmm. he didn't follow that. Yeah. And then here's this guy, never been married doesn't have kids and yet he's the guy giving everybody marriage and family advice and i'm just like there's something off there (laughs) we called him the modern day apostle paul so we really believed that he was truly set apart by god and he was revered uh, exponentially because of his status yeah this sounds pretty familiar doesn't it jen yeah, it really does. Jen uh, shared with us on episode 28 uh, how her parents would make her cut her hair because she was too pretty. Or she, Jen, it was when you got kicked out of the house and they made you go to a hotel was because you had Christian music, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had Michael W. Smith CDs. And they kicked me out. Um, They did not want my influence on my younger siblings. And the cutting of the hair was I had kissed a boy at 17. And my mom said that boys were drawn to long, beautiful hair. And so I had to cut it at my ears short because it was too attractive. Obviously, from the experiences that you've shared uh, about your upbringing and what you came out of in this movement and fundamentalism and Gothardism, Obviously, from these experiences, there's much brokenness that came from being a part of this cult. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about some of the main themes of the movement that brought brokenness to you and so many others? And Emily, you go ahead and just kind of share. And then Jen, you know, if you want to chime in, just go ahead, because both of you have a lot of experience with this. And I want our listeners to be able to understand these tenets and these ideologies that were the overarching things that really drove what was being taught and then eventually what the results of those ideologies were in bringing brokenness not only to yourselves, but to many other people that I'm sure that you've talked to and and been in relationship with. So Emily, if you'd go ahead and start. Yeah, I would say that I was personally affected most by two specific teachings. One being the patriarchal system. Gothard's foundational teaching for IBLP was what he called the umbrella of authority. And so it was a graphic he would put up on the screen and it showed God or Jesus as this large umbrella and then a smaller umbrella. And underneath it was the husband and underneath that was the wife and underneath that was the children. And he told us that if you do something in your life 
this that causes your umbrella to be leaky. So for instance, you know, my father was not obeying God's moral law. (laughs) Then Gothard said that fiery darts of Satan would go through his umbrella and attack the family. At the same time, we were also taught that if you stepped out from your umbrella of protection, in other words, your God-given authority, according to Gothard, then you would also be struck by fiery darts of Satan. So here I was as a teenager, seeing what I believed to be satanic attack on our family as I watched my father have this midlife moral crisis, and his actions were obviously harming our family. I just believed it to be a satanic attack, and yet... My father was also supposed to be my God-given authority, and so we were supposed to obey and submit without question and comply with his abuse. Hmm. And me and my mother were supposed to win my father over with godly influence, which just meant shut up and try to be as meek and submissive and mild as possible. And suddenly that's going to have, you know, this tenderizing effect on his heart and make him change, which is a concept pulled from scripture, but completely twisted to not mean at all what it originally meant in scripture. Uh, So I lived in this conundrum where I felt helpless that I was under the satanic attack. I wasn't told about protection from God. I wasn't told that I could not be inhabited by demons because I had the Holy Spirit within me. I was never told that. And then at the same time, the abuse was never addressed in the home because it was always, well, you just have to submit more and trust God. So basically, they're, all this. yeah, so basically all of the responsibility is being put on the women and children for the behavior yes. of the husband. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Uh, we're supposed to be both martyrs and influencers. It's, it's a very messed up system. So I lived with all that pressure as a teenager. The other major teaching that really affected me was the purity culture that was throughout the entire organization and very strict rules as far as courtship, they called it. You weren't supposed to date, you were supposed to court. And so it was a kind of a way of arranged marriage where the fathers were supposed to be picking out the potential suitors for the daughters and no kissing before marriage. Some families didn't do any handholding or any contact whatsoever before marriage. Zero alone time before marriage for the couple. Um, they could only court in group circles. So with other individuals family members or friends. So there was no chance to really bond as a couple and have those deep conversations that were necessary. In fact, we were told not to have deep conversations (laughs) with someone that you were. Because uh, that's too intimate, right? Because it's too intimate, whether it's discussing sexual boundaries or it's discussing even deep theological discussions or spiritual, anything like that, it would be considered crossing a line emotionally, becoming emotionally connected with someone that you had not yet vowed to. Uh, So the entire idea was, I remember being told that the epitome that you should look to or or strive for, that uh, engaged couples should not say, I love you until the altar. And I remember telling my mom that I don't want my future husband to tell me I love you 
until our wedding day. So you're really intentionally trying to marry a stranger here. We're told it's safe because you're supposed to observe each other from a distance. Uh, So if you have interest in another person, you don't express that interest, but you observe them from a distance. So it's kind of like spying on somebody to see if you can figure out what their true godly character is and if they make a good spouse. Um, So there was all that. But then also there was how you were treated if you were a victim of sexual abuse. You may have heard of some of the examples that would be used as object lessons of a chewed up piece of gum or a rose that had been crushed or a cookie that had been licked. And then they're like, you know, do do you want to eat this? Do you you want this flower? No, of course you don't, because it's it's gross. It's been tainted. It's been smushed. It's been licked on. (laughs) That's what we were taught is if you had any sexual experience whatsoever. And that could be a crush. You could have a crush on somebody that could be holding hands with somebody that you're not engaged to. And that means that you are pretty much forever marred. There is no redemption in this (laughs) ideology So here I am as a victim from my father and being told that you're a chewed up piece of bubble gum. Yeah, I'm a piece of chewed up gum and I'm not worthy anymore. That is extremely detrimental to an abuse survivor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just the physical abuse you went through, but now you're being perpetually mentally and emotionally abused and even spiritually abused. It's it's ridiculous. And I find it interesting too the the crossover between with the patriarchy and the purity culture and all of these, it, it all kind of just like, there's so many facets to all of this, but you know, I was thinking about when uh, Jill Duggar was talking about like, you know, the whole thing when her and her husband got engaged. And I mean, it was Jim Bob's <laughs> decision pretty much like and I, you know, talking about like almost it's like arranged really, marriages. It's really funny how that backfired on Jim Bob. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. But um, here Jim Bob's regretting that decision. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he is. <laughs> well, Gothard's teachings when we had Jen on before, you know, she talked a lot about the umbrella of protection because that was constantly what was thrown in her face and the purity culture was constantly thrown in her face. And obviously she just shared some of what she went through. Jen, what about you? Is there anything you'd like to add as far as like some of these main tenants to add on to what Emily has already said? Yeah, um, I would definitely agree that those two were the biggest negative influence in my life, the umbrella and the purity culture. Uh, Definitely also the whole moralism aspect of like your appearances and how you make appearance look, you know, so that obedience when I had kissed the boy at 17, my parents wanted me to get up in front of the church and apologize. Nobody knew (laughs) But to them, it had made them look bad. So my mom stepped down from all of her church service. Uh, She was the a musician at the church and my dad was a deacon. I was involved in you know many different facets of church and we had to step down. I was no longer worthy to be serving. The umbrella of protection, uh, when I asked to move out at the age of 20, I was told that that was leaving the umbrella of protection. And if I did, I was in rebellion and I would never be allowed home. And at the time, I did leave and I was not allowed to talk to my siblings. I was told I was never allowed back home. There was a very strained relationship there. And then when I was getting married, I had had 
sex with my husband before we were married and my parents basically said I had no choice but to get married and they they did not like Brad they did not like him at all but because we had had sex then this is what we had to do right and walking me down the aisle my dad said I'll walk you down but I won't give you away because you're no longer mine to give uh you know you've already given yourself away and then my husband was very abusive and I was told that that was a result of my having left the umbrella that was basically my fault if I had just stayed under the umbrella of protection under my father I would have been safe and like you made your bed now no sleep in it So those are the types of things that really influenced me. Here I am in an abusive marriage and I didn't really have anywhere to go. Um, Trying to talk to my parents was not helpful. Talking to their pastor, he was the one who told me, well, you left. This is what happens when you have sex before you're married or you leave that umbrella. So in other words, you know, the abuse that you were going through was all your fault because of your rebellion is basically the gist. Yeah, that's very common in fundamentalist circles for certain. Well, Gothard's teachings, unfortunately, have had a far-reaching influence. It's not just Gothard. It's not just IBLP. It's not just ATI. It's not even just now in just fundamentalism. But where else in Christianity, Emily, if you'd like to start, where else in Christianity have you seen his influence, Gothard's influence, whether it's been intentionally or unintentionally? I'll tell you what, I want to read this post, um, actually. I I love what you wrote here, and you titled it An Open Letter to the Evangelical Church. And you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but not because of you. You see, I grew up within your four walls. My family never missed a Sunday. I wore the long dresses and never cut my hair. I made sure to always smile and never complain. I stayed away from outsiders. I sheltered myself from any hint of the world. But by the time I reached adulthood, drowning under the crushing weight of fear-based teaching that you placed upon me, I realized that I didn't know who Jesus was. You see, you spent 25 years telling me how to act like a Christian but you never taught me about Jesus. You taught me that only real Christians practice courtship and save their first kiss for marriage. Only real Christians wear head coverings and made sure their knees and shoulders were never exposed. Only real Christians avoided rock music and tattoos. Only real Christians read their Bible every single day and handed out gospel tracts three times a week. Only real Christians never get divorced. You taught me all about God's wrath, how if I stepped a toe out of line, he would be quick to punish me. Severe illness, rape, financial ruin. Now, years later, after trying and then failing to follow all of your rules, almost leading me to lose my faith entirely, I'm hearing countless others asking the same questions I once wrestled with. Why are our marriages failing despite practicing foolproof courtship? Why are one in four of us sexually abused despite following your modesty message? Why do you continue to protect the abusers in our lives while shunning us who dare bring evil actions to light? Why are we still plagued with chronic illness despite saying countless prayers? Why do we often experience far less love in the body of Christ than in the non-believing community around us? Your once faithful members are crying out, what about us? What now? You taught us legalistic rules instead of the gospel. You taught us bondage instead of freedom. You sheltered us from the very world Jesus commands his followers to go out into. By drilling fear into our mind, you didn't point us to Jesus. No, 
the tragedy, dear church, is not that people are leaving the church in droves. The real tragedy is that by starving your people of the true message of the gospel, you have nearly fatally wounded your once most devoted followers and then left us with no one to turn to because we're told Jesus doesn't want to see our mess. The true gospel message must include broken people. But you were too concerned about appearances to allow people to be broken. You were too concerned about protecting wolves that you forgot about defending your sheep. But thankfully, even when you disowned us, Jesus did not. Even when you shunned me, Jesus did not. When you told me that because of my history of sexual abuse, I was a chewed up piece of bubblegum and no man would want me. Jesus told me that my worth was not defined by my sexual history. When you told me that my chronic illness was a result of not forgiving my abuser, Jesus comforted me and told me, that my body having a natural reaction to abuse was not a sin. When you told me that I was the cause of a man's lust, Jesus told me that I wasn't responsible for someone else's choices. When you told me that depression was evidence of lack of faith, Jesus pulled in tighter and assured me that nothing could separate me from his love. When you told me that God hates divorce, Jesus told me that he hates the abuse that forces victims to flee to safety even more. When you told me that we need to protect the name of Christianity by burying scandals, Jesus told me that he can defend his own name and to expose any darkness. When you told me to stay sweet, Jesus told me to start flipping tables. I like that, by the way. So you see, church, you may have failed me, but Jesus didn't. You have rejected me when I started to ask questions, but Jesus never let me go. So I ask you, church, Will you turn away from your whitewashed piety? Are you willing to cast out the wolves in your pews and pulpits that you've given sanctuary to and offer justice and mercy towards survivors? Are you willing to take a stand for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, and for the abused? Are you willing to see the disabled in your community as equal image bearers of Christ? Are you willing to leave behind the chains of legalism and preach the radical freedom of the resurrected Christ? Are you willing to end the deception of flashy and empty promises and instead comfort people in the midst of their raw grief and pain? Are you willing to start following Jesus? Because until you are willing, you will find more and more of your pews empty. Not because your parishioners left the faith. That's very important. But because they went looking for hope outside of your walls and they finally found Jesus. Sister, that is one of the best things I've ever read. That right there, that speaks right to the heart of my listeners. It spoke to my heart. You know, I've I've done several episodes talking about spiritual abuse. I've done several episodes talking about illegitimate church discipline, horrible biblical counseling practices and methods, because I've been through all of it. And there, there's just so much within fundamentalism and it, the, these fundamentalist ideologies that bring so much hurt to people. And man, you just hit the nail on the head on every point there. And as I said earlier, you know, these teachings, unfortunately, it's it's not just fundamentalism. You wrote an open letter to the evangelical church. Why? And I, I looked down in the comment section where you were like saying, this is why, <laughs> because I'm sure somebody was like, what are you saying the whole church? Well, that's because that's the problem. It's not just the independent fundamental Baptist. It's, I mean, we're finding these things now in the PCA, in the OPC, in the SBC, non-denominational churches. It's rampant everywhere. 
So where else you personally have you seen these ideologies uh, manifesting that concerned you? I mean, you hit it on the head as far as we've seen it in a lot of more mainstream churches. Of course, it's hit Baptist churches and Southern Baptist churches and some of the non-denominational churches. We see this quite a bit in the most popular books written specifically on Christian marriage, I would say, in the 90s and early 2000s. Books that were extremely popular in even more, I would say, secular churches, books like Love and Respect even has some of these, some of this ideology woven throughout it. A lot of books just by big name Christian authors are written with this underlying thread, the patriarchy, even though it may be much better concealed. Um, If you really, really study it, you'll see the patriarchy in there. You'll see that most Christian books, especially geared toward relationships, focus one thing for the men, and that is how to be a leader of your home and how to figure out what God's purpose is for you and how to be a strong leader for your wife. And then for the women, they are taught to submit no matter what. They are taught to uh, win an abusive husband's heart through her meekness and gentleness. There are no caveats in these books for abuse. There is no boundaries. There is very little equality. And most complementarian authors would say that, of course, they believe in equality between men and women. God created men and women equal. But that's not what their teaching says. No. Their teaching is strictly based off of a hierarchy and the very accepted teaching that Eve was deceived in the garden. And somehow that makes women more deceived. And I don't believe that so much blame should be put on Eve, first of all. But secondly, women just as a whole are not created as these inferior beings that have to have a man to direct them and guide them. In the garden, Adam and Eve were created as equal, as co-heirs and co-rulers over creation. And there was no hierarchy established in the garden. Adam was never directed to be the leader or authority over Eve. Rather, they had equal authority over creation. And patriarchy was not designed by God, but rather it was created by man and it is woven throughout scripture. But if you move all the way through generations where that was practiced in the Old Testament, you move into the New Testament, you have to actually look at what Jesus exampled and Jesus exampled equality. Jesus broke social norms. He spoke to women. He elevated them. He put them in positions of ministry. Mm-hmm. He did not practice a patriarchal approach toward women at all. And so when I read scripture, that's what I filter it through is the heart of Jesus and how creation was originally established. I don't hold to man-made social ideologies that go against God's original design. Well, it was interesting in your open letter there, and I found this in the documentary as well. Like I even heard somebody giving a review on it, and they were saying, yeah, that last episode, you could really get the whole deconstructionism vibe from that. And it's like, well, yeah, it wasn't that they were deconstructing from Jesus. <laughs> they were deconstructing from bad teaching 
and from abuse and from a cult. There's a big difference between leaving Christ and the gospel and leaving something that's not Christ in the gospel. And my question for you is this, what was it that really finally helped you to understand that Gothardism was not actually biblical? You know, there had to be like a light bulb moment for you. And then how has God been continuing to help you heal from the trauma and the abuse that you endured as a result? Well, it originally started after I got home from headquarters and that whole experience. Several months later, I came across a website called recoveringgrace.org where survivors of IBLP had begun to tell their stories online about what they experienced and how they believed that it was unscriptural. The teachings were, and then they also were sharing some of the abusive experiences that they lived through while in the Institute's care. Um, And I read that and I, that was my first understanding that I had been sexually harassed by Gothard. And that was, that was kind of the crack into all of it. Eventually, a few years after that, I joined a lawsuit. In total, there were 19 victims, uh, 17 women and two men. And we sued both IBLP and Gothard. IBLP for neglect over not handling allegations that were brought to them, but then also Gothard for the actual abuse. We fought in that lawsuit for five years years until 2020. In the middle of all that is when I started counseling. And I started, I would say, as several survivors do, where I started with a traditional biblical counselor. And I don't recommend working with just a biblical family counselor long term. I would concur with that. (laughs) (laughs) For me, a lot of them have extremely dangerous ideology as well, and just will continue to place blame on victims and tell women to just submit more and they don't hold abusers accountable. Yeah. But in this case, I had someone who actually used to work for IBLP and had left the organization. And so mm. he understood it extremely well yeah. and was able to help me disentangle a lot of the lies that I had been taught growing up and disentangle that from the truth. And so that was that was my first experience with someone validating what I went through, that it was abuse and that what I had been taught in IBLP was not the gospel. I later moved on to professional therapists, which I really highly recommend doing that and trauma-informed therapists and special trauma work called EMDR which is really good for PTSD. So I've gone through multiple different healing avenues. What was really the turning point for me was a couple of years into this deconstruction process, I joined a women's Bible study. It's actually an international group called BSF. And I joined a local group for women and we were studying the book of John. And growing up in IBLP, I had only ever read the Torah, Psalms and Proverbs, and the Sermon on the Mount. So you pretty much all only had law. That was it. There was no gospel anywhere to be found. Yeah. Yes. Law and uh, from Proverbs, bits of wisdom that were considered law, (laughs) considered hard fast principles that you couldn't move from. And so reading John was an incredible experience because that is how I discovered the heart of Jesus. Yeah, I bet. You you finally figured out what all that law was about. (laughs) Right. You're like, oh, here's the guy that was supposed to actually do it for me. Oh, I get it now. We didn't learn much about Jesus. We just learned about the law and we learned about God as this scary authoritarian figure. We did not really learn the heart of the gospel message and why Jesus came. So reading John was like putting a stick of dynamite in all the teachings that I had grown up with. Yeah. And there was this one moment one night where... (laughs) 
it's, it's, it's sometimes embarrassing to share, but I had started going to this new church. It's this church I'm actually currently going to. And uh, they played contemporary Christian music. Oh, my goodness. And um, <laughs> I was also still wearing skirts at the time. And I was debating whether or not jeans were a sin or not. Right. So I was on this long walk one night, it's freezing cold night in February, and I was praying to God to tell me if contemporary Christian music and or jeans were a sin. And I wasn't hearing directly from God on this matter. And I was so frustrated in that moment. And I just broke down in sobs and I ran into the house and I ran into my bedroom and I collapsed on the floor and had my first full-blown panic attack. Mm. And on that floor, just completely broken and helpless, I cried out to God. At that moment, I let go. I let go of the striving. And I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't try to earn your love or Mm. approval. I'm not going to try anymore. Please, Jesus, I'm a lost sheep. Just pick me up and bring me back to your flock. And he did on that night. And that was the day that I stopped trying to earn his love and approval. And I just lived in my identity that I already had. That's right. That's right. And that's what law-based teaching always does. Nobody can ever fulfill it. We've talked about that on this podcast over and over and over again. And we're very big on the law gospel distinction here, understanding that the whole purpose of the law it's to show us that we can't do it. That's the reason we need Jesus. That's the reason we need the gospel. But man, what a wonderful story of redemption and of the miracle of what God did and bringing you out of that. And, you know, unfortunately, and we've talked about this on this podcast as well, about how we have to suffer sins of others. We have to suffer our own sin. We have to suffer sins of others. And we have to just suffer living in a broken world, unfortunately. It's just the reality of what Adam brought us. And but that was the reason Jesus came. And that's the reason why we have the gospel. And that doesn't take away the pain and the trauma. It doesn't. And that's the reason why we need people like you who, as a trauma recovery advocate, you're doing what Paul said to do, comfort those with the same comfort with which you've been comforted. And that's a big principle for me because that's why I do what I do in this podcast. I want to comfort others. I want to help them to be able to understand, yeah, we're all broken people. And hopefully help some of the people that don't think they're broken come to the realization, oh, yeah, I am broken, and I need Jesus too. I want to ask you this uh, last question. As a trauma recovery advocate, how have you been able now to help others? What is it that you do um, that helps them in their journey and coming out of these types of cults? Just go ahead and share, like, are you, like, reaching out to some of these people and just trying to, like, reason with them? Or do they come to you? Or kind of how does that work? Mm-hmm. I started my organization, Thriving Forward, in 2020. And it's primarily just been an online platform where I share things like the open letter to the evangelical church. Um, I write, um, I just pour truth out um, on that page every single day and try to help the victims that are still in bondage over some of these teachings. The majority of the followers on my page are women and women that are suffering in their marriages. And so I speak a lot on domestic violence, sexual abuse within marriage. I speak a lot about quality in marriage and just the freedom that Jesus brought and exampled to us on how we are to live our lives today as Christians. And then I do have some more specific resources where I teach online classes and I have a private support group for women and 
And it's work that I do full time at this point. I do get flooded with messages every day in my inbox from victims who are desperate for healing and I point them to the resources I can. I am currently in a very rigorous training program. It's a year long to become a trauma recovery coach where I will be taking on clients one-on-one for hour-long Zoom sessions and coaching them through their struggles and teaching victims how to take back their voices, their independence, their autonomy, be able to be confident in the decisions that they make. Because my goal is to never take what would be a codependent situation with a victim and their abuser and just turn that codependence on me. I'm not the answer to these victims' problems, but rather I'm there to encourage them that they know that the truth, they have the right answers. They can do this. They can escape and they can stand. You're there to point them to the answer and the answer is Jesus (laughs) and what what he's done for us, for sure. Well, man, this has been great. What a blessing to be able to have you on today. I, th- this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. I just want you to know that. And thanks, Jen, for coming on too and just kind of being here and, and sharing some of what you went through as well. You guys have been through a lot. I've been through a lot of similar things, but on the on the side of being a guy, I dealt more with like the, the pressure that the guys get put on them to be, you know, be the manly man and all that kind of thing and and all of those things. But I, I understand all of these things you're talking about because I've seen it coming out of fundamentalism. It's just everywhere. And I see it now today, like I see it on Twitter. And I would like to have you both come back for another episode. Are we are we good with that? Okay, good, good. Because I, I want to dive into that main tenet of teaching, which is patriarchalism. It's cousin or brother complementarianism. I want to talk about those things. So I've been wanting to do an episode on that for a really long time and you guys can speak to that perfectly. So I just uh, am just very, very thankful that you're here or that you came. I would like you now, if you would, to share your website, Twitter handle, Facebook, whatever you'd like to share, any articles, books, anything like that, that you can point listeners to your resources. My website is thrivingforward.org and my primary presence online is through my Facebook page, Thriving Forward. I have a smaller presence on Instagram and even on TikTok, both under Thriving Forward, but I mostly write on Facebook. If you go to my website, you can click on resources and that is several books that I recommend for wherever you are in your healing journey. Courses are recordings of Zoom classes that I've taught in the past and then there's a tab for support groups and that's where you can learn about the ones support group that I have for women that are looking for a more private place to find safe community, to talk, ask questions, uh, and to go through their healing journey with safe community there. All right. Well, that's great. All right. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to tell you, you may be in a situation right now where you're experiencing similar things to what these women have talked about. You may be hearing teaching coming out of the pulpit on Sunday morning similar to what you've just heard talked about. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know from what we've talked about in this podcast over and over again, the law is not going to save you. The law is not going to change your life. The only thing that can change your life is Jesus Christ, who lived the law in your place, who died on the cross for your sins, and who rose again and is ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father, even now advocating for you and interceding for you. And he loves you and nothing can separate you from his love. If you need help, reach out to Thriving Forward. 
reach out to somebody like Jen on Facebook or to me on the Broken Vessels podcast Facebook page. You may have questions. We'd like to help point you to the answer, and that's Jesus. Thank you so much for joining the Broken Vessels podcast, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 